just a brief overview of what I'm going to be talking about. Introduce the topic, methodology of our survey and cognitive map, some results, uh, some limitations of this study, and a brief discussion. So, um, as you're probably aware, uh, natural hazards are threats occurring naturally which have a negative effect on a population or, or an environment. They're potentials as opposed to disasters which are events. So to give you an example, uh, 1906 um, San Francisco earthquake is a disaster, living on a flood line is a hazard. So multiple types of natural hazards, um, some uh, more frequently occurring than others. We have geophysical like avalanches, earthquakes, volcanoes, um, hydrometeorological weather-based, um, blizzards, floods, and hurricanes. Um, some of the more um, potentially damaging and infrequent, so geomagnetic storms, asteroid impacts, uh, diseases, and techno technological, for example, living near a nuclear power plant, being at risk of landfill contamination near water, that sort of thing. Um, so floods are one of the most um, commonly encountered natural hazards in Europe. And between 1998 and 2009, there was 213 recorded events, 1,100 dead, 3 million affected, at least 52 billion in losses, 12 billion of which was insured. Um, current estimates for flood damage uh, costs per year um, are 5.5 uh, billion euro. And depending on the author, um, these are projected to rise to 98 billion a year in a no climate change adaptation or no flood risk um, hazard adaptation scenario. So business as usual, um, the potential losses could rise to 98 billion a year. Um, traditionally, when people have dealt with floods, well, the traditional approach to managing floods has often been an engineered solution, a big wall, a dike, um, earth banks, that sort of thing. And the focus has been to resist the hazard, to stop it, to diverted to, um, to not be overcome by it. And these are fit for purpose in a, in, a, in a world where you know everything, where it's a static environment or if it's a slowly changing environment. However, in a rapidly changing or in an uncertain environment, the likelihood of failure is higher. If a one in a hundred uh, year event, a hundred years ago, now occurs one in every 50 years, obviously your current flood defenses are not going to do what you want them to do. They still, they fit their design parameters, but they don't protect you in the way you want. Um, so new approaches need to be taken. Um, this is some of the kind of older flood events we have in Dublin, down the Dodder. Um, pretty classic, uh, traditional flood, def flood defense, a very high wall um, with the hope that the um, water doesn't overtop. I should say, I point out that there are new flood defences uh, occurring upstream with the, with the view of mitigating downstream problems in the dollar, but it's just a nice picture in the Irish context. Um, so internationally, um, a new approach to flood risk management um, is starting to take shape or ha is, has taken shape. And this includes not only flood defences, but um, incorporating behaviour into managing the risk. So flood warnings, raising awareness among your affected populations, identifying which populations are um, more at risk than others and maybe targeting resources there, encouraging self-help and obviously land use and development control so that people don't end up in areas where you believe that there is a risk. 
So this kind of changing paradigm has been recognised at the European level in the floods directive. And plans aim to reduce the likelihood or mitigate the impact. So we can re reduce the likelihood of, uh, of uh, flood damage maybe with your engineered solutions and you can mitigate the impact if you have a population that is aware of the risk, um, is motivated to take preventative measures and is fully cognizant of any emergency plans. Um, so these new plans, the type of behaviours that they want to encourage in populations is maybe, say, if you have a lot of ele electronics, move them onto the first floor. If, you ha if you're in a flood, flood zone, be aware of what you're going to do. Have a plan in the event of flooding. Um, and keep informed. So if you're in a flood zone, if you're in an area which is prone to floods, have some uh, mechanism to keep informed. So whether that's by radio, an informal social network um, that happens in some areas of the world, or a website, or the, the, these sort of methods are encouraged in a vulnerable population. But they can be met with resistance. In, as I've said, traditional approaches have been heavy engineered. You put the big wall, you put the dike, um, you, and this can engender a feeling of comfort, a feeling of safety, a feeling of confidence um, in, in this method to keep you safe. So if you don't believe it's your problem, if don't, you don't believe it's your responsibility to keep yourself safe from flooding, you might not have moved your valuables upstairs, you might not have a personal, plan, personal flood plan, and you might not keep yourself as informed as others who believe that they do have a personal responsibility. Um, so it is important to understand how these affected population view their view themselves um, in terms of uh, the flood risk or hazard risk. So, because unless you understand how your affected population views themselves, you cannot implement um, or design a plan that incorporates these behavioral components. Um, so, perceiving risk. This is um, a complicated topic, um, and my background is physical sciences, so dealing with human stuff has made it even more complicated. Um, so how risk is perceived can determine how you prepare for risk, the behaviours that you use um, to mitigate this risk, the, beha the behaviours that are elicited from communication of this risk. Um, so it, can, it can affect the coping strategies. Um, so coping strategies can include denial, um, putting your head in the sand, that sort of thing. Um, it, and it can affect the behavioural responses to warnings. So if you don't believe yourself at risk, maybe you won't react in a timely fashion. Classic example would be when a fire alarm goes off in a building in UCD and everybody sits at their desk. Um, so it can be affected by a number of factors. Um, situational factors, which are the focus of this work, and these would be spatial. So the proximity, the location, how near are you to the thing that is potentially risky. Um, the socioeconomic uh, risk pro profiles, the perception of risk tends to change as we age, whether we have access to lots of, in lots of disposable income or not. Um, gender, in some studies, have, sh have shown to be a factor. Education as well. Um, cognitive factors play, uh, play an important point as well. Um, so how the outside environment is viewed internally. In, in, in some studies we've uh, looked at, 
those who have experienced a hazard event, they, are, they perceive risk differently than otherwise identical people who have not experienced this hazard event. So the, the situational factors might be identical, but it's this processing of the experience that has changed the perception of risk. And that's kind of what I mean by feelings there. And as I said, we're gonna uh, concentrate on the spatial um, components in this work. So, uh, spatial manifestation of risk perception. Um, there is a limited, or actually maybe a more correct way to say this, is this um, spotty, um, there's, there's many different studies that do many different things, no, not a whole lot of studies that do a kind of, uh, there's not, the field has yet to congeal into one or two uh, kind of defined topics. So some examples of authors who've looked at spatial manifestations of risk, in other words, where are you, where is the hazard, and is there a relationship between them, would be uh, Rune et al., which looked at flash floods and people's perceptions of which roads are safe to take during flash flood events. Um, the next one is an Icelandic study that looked at the perception of flood risk due to ice jams. It's generally probably not a, a risk that we're gonna encounter in <coughs> Ireland, but you never know. And then um, the final one, which looked at flooding from rivers and place of residence. And so these, but these papers have one thing in common. They focus on defining um, risk perception in terms of the real distance from the respondent to the, uh, the flood zone or the flood source. When I say real distance, I mean in meters, the objective distance. Um, so some generalities that come out of the literature, uh, they might be intuitive, but uh, they've also been found. So as distance to the hazard increases, the perceived risk goes down. So the further away you move from the volcano, the more safe you feel. This makes sense. Um, and as distance to the hazard source increases, the perceived impact decreases. So as you move away from the river, the less likely you are to get your carpets ruined. Or maybe it'll only be your carpets and your car won't be washed away. But this is not universal. Um, some studies have found that residents who are very close to hazards can actually have a lower risk perception <coughs> compared to those that are further away. And it's been suggested that if there is a benefit associated with being close to the hazard, um, for example, if you're close to a nuclear plant and that's the source of your jobs and it's bringing a lot of money into, into the area, you may perceive or you can report that you feel less, um, less at risk than someone who's a bit further away. Another thing that can mitigate this sense of, uh, sense of risk is that if, you, if, if this thing, whatever the hazard source, if it really contributes to the sense of place, so Sellafield would be an example, it's on the map because of the, of the processing plant. Um, I don't know of any studies that look at Mount Etna, uh, but that could potentially be, uh, be another example. Um, so analyzing spatial risk perception, um, we found two main methods have been used, um, is cognitive maps and the spatial representations of surveys. So a cognitive map is knowledge in your head about a space. So you can re represent some, um, this cartographically, and that's what we do in this study. 
we get people to draw a map of where they think is at risk of flooding. Um, other other um, examples in the literature have been um, the Rune et al. study. They looked at, on, on this roadmap, show me the roads that you think are vulnerable to flash flooding. Um, and the other way, spatial representations of surveys are, um, if I say in an ED level, 90% of respondents in ED1 might report a certain finding versus 20% in ED2. And then you can take that survey information and display it cardiographically. I mean, the census does this all the time. Um, so this is an example of some cognitive maps. This is by um, Brilliant Pollock. And what they did was, uh, it's not very clear here, they had certain study areas and they interviewed people within the study areas. And they got them to say, where in the study area is at prone to flooding? And each one of these blobs represents one respondent's um, interpretation. So they superimposed these on each other and did a qualitative analysis. Um, they didn't really have a lot of metrics in this. But this is an example of a cognitive map. T take the information that's in your head and show me, tell, give it to me on this map. Um, spatial represent representation of surveys. So this is a kind of another example, say 90% of the people within this central area believe it is vulnerable to the horrors, which is a landslide due to volcanic action. Um, and then other people in other areas, uh, lesser percentages of those surveyed feel that way. So we were looking at what we uh, think is a gap in the literature. Um, the literature that we've uh, reviewed so far, in fact, we've done this fairly comprehensively, we believe, uh, tends to look at real distance to hazard. Um, and there, as far as we know, there have been very few or no, no studies that looking how is perceived distance to hazard um, and how does that affect how you, your risk perception. Um, so we linked a cognitive map to survey responses. Um, so just to give you a little bit of background about our case study area, um, Spray County Wicklow, and I'll show you an exact uh, map of the study area in a moment, but the hazard source is the Dargo River. There's been many historical examples of flooding within Bray, and there's been numerous minor floods, and the 2011 floods, although they get quite a lot of press coverage, are in this context uh, a minor event compared to major events in 1905, 1931, 65, and 86. And the 1965 event um, was sufficient for, for remedial works to be done on the river. The discharge was increased to 2000, or 200 uh, cubic meters a second. And unfortunately, the 1986 event, which is a one in a 100 year event, uh, the discharge at that time was 285 cubic meters a second. So that means 85 cubic meters a second just was going not in the river, was going sideways. And this is known as the Hurricane Charlie event because it was heavily influenced by the tail end of Hurricane Charlie as it passed over Ireland. Um, after 1985, there was uh, campaigning <coughs> for improved flood defences. And it was about 2006 when this started, like, for want of a better term, a concrete plan was drawn up. However, with financial crisis and then a change in government, 
and there was considerable uncertainty about whether or not these works would go ahead. Um, so our survey was conducted during this period of uncertainty and um, I think they are actually going ahead now. So we plan to do um, another follow-up survey when they're complete to see if there's any changes. Um, so our study area um, consists of a 500 metre buffer along the Darvel River. And this includes both those who are at risk and who are not at risk. And we tried, uh, we knocked on the doors of um, pretty much the whole um, number of households within, within this um, study area. And we got about 304 responses. So not bad. Um, we collected uh, the usual so socioeconomic data. Um, socioeconomic data in, in this type of literature is routinely collected. Um, so we collected age, income, gender, education, length of residence, uh, tenure, that means housing tenure, whether you're a renter uh, or an owner or something, uh, some combination. Um, we connect, collected some self-reported variables uh, like uh, preparedness, worry, risk perception. Um, we, we also broke preparedness down into preparedness actions. So have you done physical things like have you bought sandbags, have you moved valuables? or non-physical things, have you uh, investigated, um, what, have you looked at the, the flood plan, have you looked at flood insurance, that sort of thing. Um, and we collected some attitudinal data, like say the cause of the flooding, uh, party responsible for the mitigation and cleanup. Um, so causes would be climate change, random events, poor land use planning. Party responsible would be local authorities, myself, emergency response units, that sort of thing. Um, so the cognitive maps, so how did we do this? So we gave each respondent um, a map of the study area. And this had, it wasn't cluttered, but it had sufficient landmarks so that the respondents could be orientated. Um, if they asked for guidance from uh, the surveyors, uh, they were in terms of where am I, uh, the surveyors um, uh, uh, helped them. They said, we are right here, that's your house. Um, so we asked them to outline the areas at risk of flooding due to a severe flood, flood event, like the 1986 Hurricane Charlie event. And we used 1986 event because it's the most recent severe flood event in the last century, and it had um, a community-wide impact. It's still very much in, uh, on the minds of the residents in Bray, um, and it's a very evocative event. So this example, um, should have given them the, the idea of the severity that we wanted them to, to think about. Um, so this is our study area. Um, this is almost identical to the map the, um, the, uh, the respondents were given. It did not include this placeholder map here. Um, but otherwise, it's, it's, it's like the, the map the respondents got. Um, the exact question is this. Thinking about the Darla River here in Bray, could you outline as accurately as possible on this map the likely extent of the area you believe would be affected by a severe flood? For example, flood centering scale to that of Hurricane Charlie in 1986. So this is an example of one of the respondents' maps. So this respondent is um, crudely or broadly or non-specifically outlining um, the, the flood extent that they, uh, or the areas they believe are at risk of flooding. Um, and this is an example of a respondent who um, has incorporated the, the 
curve of the river and some of the contour lines and the roads into how they perceive flood risk. Um, these two examples are, are, are one of, we had obviously 304 examples, um, they varied hugely in terms of the area, um, the precision with which the respondents um, incorporated the match, match and map features, and um, yeah, there, wa there wasn't a common typology. Um, so to do some analysis of these maps, we took them from the paper and we put them into GIS. So we scanned the map, we georeferenced it, that means that we made sure that a point on the map corresponds to a point in real space, and then we digitized the respondent's cognitive map. That means we traced around the outline of their map so that we then had a polygon which we could compute um, characteristics for, for example, like the area or the perimeter. Um, and then we set about creating um, a number of indicators. Um, I've showed you one indicator here. We actually uh, computed uh, four of them. Um, this is the only one uh, that seemed to be correlated with anything. Um, so this indicator was the area of overlap. So if this is the actual flood extent, and this is the respondent's flood extent, then only this area overlaps. And this indicator is the area of overlap divided by the area of the total flood extent. Other indicators did the reverse, like the area that didn't overlap. Um, some were combinations of these two factors. Some were looking at the overall area of the map compared to the overall area of flood. Um, and we used the combination of these, but ultimately um, they did not prove to be, um, to be good predictors of um, flood, flood risk perception. Uh, we then went on to calculate um, some distance metrics. So we, knew, we know where the respondent's, um, the respondent location was, their house. So we can compute then the distance from the respondent's house to the river distance from the respondent's house to the real flood extent, the distance from the, the response house to the edge of their perceived flood extent, and we computed distance to the coast as well. Um, one last thing we did was we combined the respondent's map into a, a density map. And what we mean is if you get all the different cognitive maps and you line, uh, you overlap them, certain areas will be overlapped by many maps, other areas will be overlapped by few maps. And if you then you, you transform these into one map, doing a process like this, you get a density map. So it's kind of hard to see in the slide, but um, we have a core area here where about 58 72% of our respondents identified this, at least this area, as being at risk of, of flooding in a severe event. Um, but outside this core area, the, both the, the value of each component, each cell, um, drops and it increases in variability. So this suggests to us um, that the collective knowledge uh, of, of all the response can, can maybe tell you, it can definitely tell you, well, this area is definitely at risk of, it can tell you that a lot of respondents perceive this area to be at risk of flooding, and it is, but um, 
it gives a mixed picture and it suggests that the, there's inconsistency between the, the respondents about where actually flood risk exists. Um, so to go on to some results, uh, these are just some of our socio-economic uh, um, results. Some people didn't want to tell us their age or education or income, but we had 304 respondents, 291 told us their income. That's not bad. Um, we had a number of different employment categories, but we recoded for the purpose of this presentation into working or not working. Um, you can see that our population of the respondents are a little bit older. Um, they tend to have gone to secondary school anyway. Um, they're relatively well paid or they have relatively okay income. And employment is about 50-50 between working and not working. Um, with a slight bias towards the not working. Um, well, so, so the socioeconomic uh, variables, they were correlated with some things. The age was neg negatively correlated with worry and risk profile. And what I mean by risk profile is we asked them on a scale of one to 10, how, do you, uh, how would you describe yourself? Are you a risk avoider or a risk taker? Um, so older people tended to be uh, more risk avoiding. Um, they tended to be less worried about flooding they're more likely to have experienced the flood, um, and they're more likely to have taken several non-physical preparedness actions. And they tend to live closer to the flood zone than the younger people, and they also tend to think that they live closer to the flood zone, i.e. their place of residence tends to be closer to the edge of their cognitive map than for younger people. Um, these, the, these are not identical. Uh, gender wasn't correlated with a lot. Um, males uh, reported that they were more risk-taking than females, and females tend to be more worried about flooding. And there were no other significant correlations with gender. Um, lastly, education um, was correlated with a lot of things. Um, it was positively correlated with risk profiles, so the more educated you, you are, you, the more likely you are to report that you are a risk-taker. Um, the more likely you are to uh, be aware of flooding as an issue and to take uh, one non-physical uh, measure of preparedness. And it was negatively correlated with worry, so I suppose um, if, you, yeah, if you are more educated then you, you worry about floods less. Um, the more educated you tend to not have experienced our, our sample, it, the, the more educated were less likely to have experienced a flood. They were less likely to have lived there um, as long. And um, unfortunately, none of, well, not unfortunately, but none of the socioeconomic <coughs> factors were correlated with risk perception. Now, in, if you look at the literature, depending on the study you look at, age is sometimes positively correlated with risk perception in some studies, it's negatively in others. Same with gender, same with education, same with income. And um, same with housing tenure as well. So, uh, no, I'll get to that in limitations of study. But yeah, um, the, uh, so in relation to socioeconomics, we we think that um, a lot of the studies are are context context dependent, and I suppose that that would that would explain the variability of the results. Um, 
So, risk perception, what was it correlated with? Um, as with other literature, um, the distance from the risk source, so in this case the river, is correlated with risk perception. How far did people think they are from the, the flood zone um, is correlated. Flood experience is correlated with risk perception. Worry about flooding, obviously if you're worried about flooding you probably think you're at risk, uh, but we did find that. Um, and self-reported preparedness, those who feel they're at the, the higher you feel, the more risk you feel you are at flooding, the more likely you are to take pre pre uh, precautionary measures. Um, so that's all well and good, but then we created a regression model. And our initial model was just um, the distance variables. And then we incorporated some of the socioeconomic controls like experience, preparedness, and what we find in this case is that as preparedness, uh, like flood, the, the distance to perceived flood is a more important determinant, it's not as significant, but it is significant, um, than the distance to the real flood. And tr this may seem surprising, but we have not found any other literature that has looked at this. So this is why we think it's a, it's a gap in the literature and this is why we would welcome comments on the development of this. Um, there are limitations to this study. Um, we did not ask in the survey, how far do you think you are from the flood zone? We are basing our distance metric on the cognitive map and our knowledge of their residents. So it would have been good if we got that as a uh, for comparative purposes, um, and forty percent of the households that were that we got an answer to the door from um, refused to participate, and we did not collect the data as to why. Um, population is not uh, the same as nationwide; it's overrepresented by the unemployed students, females, and retirees. And we did not collect data on ethnicity, language, or religion. So these are definitely um, limitations. Uh, obviously, ethnicity would have, you, you might live there for um, a shorter time. You would have maybe communication difficulties. You, you may have a different cultural experience and therefore perception of flooding. Um, and obviously, um, language would contribute to that. Religion um, can be a coping mechanism. Um, if you think everything is God's will, then you may not take action. Um, so our study perceived uh, our study found perceived distance is a significant determinant of perceived risk. Um, in the full model, perceived distance has a greater explanatory power than real distance. Um, to our knowledge, this is the first paper to show this. Um, the study focused on flooding, but we think that a similar um, finding or similar work could be applicable to other hazards. And as stated above, um, the flood risk management today involves both flood defense and the engineering solutions, but also these uh, behavioral, behavioral components and like non-engineering components. So these factors uh, are dependent on risk perception and therefore flood risk management is dependent on risk perception. So you need an improved understanding or improved, uh, risk, improved 
um, you need to improve risk per perception in your affected population to increase the performance of these interrelated factors. Um, and that's, 